a manifesto for hope. In this episode of The Different Podcast, I talk with Steve Chalk about his new book, A Manifesto for Hope. We discuss how the systems that are meant to help people are failing. We look all the way back to the Beverage Report, a revolution that laid out how to create social equality through partnership between government, the voluntary sector and local communities right at its core. Steve makes plain what needs to happen next a new form of partnership where decisions are made as close to the ground as possible and describes how transcendence, spirituality and community must be held at the core of a new manifesto. This was an incredibly rich and profound conversation and the book is a must read for sure. Steve, it's good to see you again. Another episode of the Different Podcast. Wow. How many have we done now? I don't know, but a lot. Well, it's good to be here. You're, this is your, you're, you're the genius behind this. Who I just, I just so turn up and prattle away for a bit. <laughs> well, this, this one, Steve, I'm really excited about because it's about your new book. Aha, A Manifesto for Hope. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's go. A Manifesto of Hope, brilliant. But why that title? Ah, well, that title because, well, the book was born out of two tragedies in the Oasis world. Um, In December 21, within 12 hours, two of our students were murdered. One teenager was murdered, attacked by another teenager. And very tragically, a child in one of our schools, a young child, five-year-old, was murdered by his mother. December 21, you'll remember, was when we'd been locked down, then let out, you know, eat out to help out, then Mm. locked down again, and then things softened up for Christmas. But then at the last minute, we were told we had to stay at home. Bubble up. Bubble up and all the rest of it. So it came into that environment where all sorts of things were strained and stressed and weren't working. And, you know, I refer to that mother who murdered her child, but which is terrible. It's also true that she was alone, she was poor, she was without community, she was denied relationship and human contact. You know, some of the results of COVID and decisions made around COVID and sometimes made at last minute, which offered hope and then withdrew it. So it's a terrible, terrible, tragic thing that's happened but this pushed me to write the book in fact it was in that day I suppose right right at the end of the year I decided I have to write about how the systems fail people Oasis mission as you know is to create community where everyone can thrive and every single individual can fulfill their God-given potential and I was faced with the fact that in the case of these two boys we had not fulfilled our mission yeah and so that drives you back to say, so what could we have done better and and what can't we do better because the systems don't support us? Yeah, you're talking about the systems. It's really important in this conversation, isn't it? So what is it that's gone wrong? And I guess we need to look a long way back to understand what's gone wrong. I think that the big thing that's um, gone wrong is simply this, and uh, I sum it up uh, in the introduction to my book, book i think the book starts with me saying that it was on december the 1st 1942 that william beveridge 
a name that's well known for yeah. the beverage report now, wandered up Downing Street to deliver this report that had been commissioned by government. He'd been asked to think about how we built a state where that created the abolition of poverty and want and mm. squalor, et cetera, et cetera, and created a new Britain post-war. And this is the report that he delivered. By the way, nobody had ever heard of Beveridge till that point, and he was already in his mid-60s. Right. He was a, a teacher, he was a scholar, an academic, but he was asked to do this job and effectively became a politician, I guess, in that sense. And this was for the national government led by Winston Churchill, you know, the whole mm. country working together. How do we as a people get this, ru yeah. get this up and running? Anyway, he delivered his report. It was hugely popular with everyone. It sold 600,000 copies in the first year just to ordinary people. I mean, can you imagine That's a government incredible. white paper or green paper that people are feverishly <laughs> reading on buses? No, I can't. Yeah, it's a and it was translated into 22 other languages. Wow. It was like a total revolution. Yeah. And people like, wow, and this is going to lead to the development of a national health service where health is free because you had to pay for it and if you were poor you couldn't yeah. pay for it and it's going to lead to this welfare state where if I'm ill and can't be at work I'm actually going to receive sick pay and support for young families so all of this everybody thought it was wonderful yeah. and then after the end of the war in 1946 Clement Attlee's government the new Labour government were putting this into place but what had actually happened is there'd been lots of arguments in government about some of the principles that Beveridge's report was based on. And um, one of his great principles was this had to be a partnership between everyone involved, right. was involved. Until the formation of the welfare state, all welfare was basically delivered by the voluntary sector and, and specifically by churches, loads of churches, because yeah. there were loads of churches. There were others involved, lots of livery groups and all sorts yeah. of things. But this was all delivered locally. And um, it was a bit patchy for that reason. You know, it was a bit like a postcode lottery. If you happen to have a, a, a good charity near you or a good church or something like that, they probably had a community nurse and did all yeah. sorts of things and, you know, and legal help and support and, you know, the churches formed the first unions and all that kind of thing. But, but if, if you not, you were stuffed. Eh? Yeah. If not, you yeah, were stuffed. Yeah, you were yeah. totally stuck. So it was government's responsibility to say, well, we've got to create equality for everybody. We've got to level up before anybody, you know, we've got to do that. And so that's why Beveridge was asked to write the report and the push towards a welfare state and the NHS was so important. The problem, said Beveridge, was, it, well, he wrote a second report in 1946, which he delivered. Actually, it was his third report, but it was another report. And he said, look, I've read about the way all this is, is going to be put into practice and it's never going to work. It's never going to work because what had happened was politicians had decided you had to move away from the voluntary sector, little mm. charities, grassroots mm. movements. They couldn't do it because they'd be biased. They were too involved emotionally. They couldn't wow. stand back and take an umbrella view. They couldn't look at things dispassionately and objectively. They'd all get wound up in, you know, local communities and not be able to see the wood for the trees so that you had to put this in the hands of professionals who would be objective. And Beveridge, when he finds this out, um, it, when he found out this was all going to be delivered by what he called civil servants, yeah. by professionals, yeah. he said, it did frankly send a chill to my heart. 
when wow. I heard this. Wow. So he wrote this second report. He said, you're missing the point. It's got to be partnership. You've got to have local communities involved. You've got to involve the mums and the dads and the aunts and the uncles and the little movements in the streets who know the streets. This has to be a societal movement, not some professional thing that's done to people instead of with people. So he predicted before it started that it was going to be a bit of a then disaster. It wouldn't, work. it wouldn't work in the long term. The truth is, if you do the research, for the first little while it did work, but it was only a little while. Within 18 months of the setting up of the NHS, um, Nye Bevan, who was the minister who brought about the NHS, had resigned. Harold Wilson, who later became yeah, Prime Minister, had resigned as well. And it's because within the first year of 18 months, prescription charges, which we're very familiar with, were introduced. But it was always supposed to be a free, free. service at the yeah. point of delivery for everyone. Yeah. What happened that no one was expecting was that poorer families, well, they say this, they say the mothers never went to a doctor with their own ailments. They just carry on you know so they might have loads of pain in their heads because of rotting teeth or some yeah. other ailment that was besetting them but they saved up their money for their children mm. on the day when the NHS opened there were queues I'm told everywhere yeah. because suddenly thought people thought I can get what I need sorted yeah. out yeah and um and and the thing was uh, was was so, swamped so there's early kind of on. something Kate Something got baked into the system, mm. which meant that it was never going to work. No, never going to work. And it, things soon started going wrong. When Tony, this sounds like name dropping, you know, but Tony Blair, who I'm going to mention. Yeah, no, <laughs> right on the floor. Well, he wrote, a, he wrote a really great endorsement for my book on the yeah. back cover. But, a but, Manifesto for yeah, Hope. A Manifesto <laughs> for Hope, yeah. Now I can remember what the title is. But the thing is, you know, um, I got to know Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister, well, I knew him a bit before, which is, you know, yeah. when he was just an ordinary bloke, you know, kind of like, and then he went and became the Prime Minister. It was a bit of a, like, a, bit of a shock. And um, anyway, the point was, that's how we, Oasis, first got into building yeah, academies absolutely. because yeah. right at the beginning, because of that's, that's where the push came from, though there were only ever going to be 40 in the most deprived communities to start with. But the thing is, one day, um, I didn't do this often, he had said to me, because he, he knew about the work that Oasis did in India, yeah. which is why we got, got schools, schools here, because yeah. we had some schools in the slums, and he knew about our work in healthcare. So he invited me in. It, it was in 1993 or four that we built a hospital in India. Yeah. You see, I raised the money and we, it's called GM Priya, still exists. Yeah. It's not in Oasis. We gave it away, a specialism hospital and that was schools. That's when you were on GMTV. That. That got wasn't it, it going through yeah. GMTV, yeah. Mr. Motivator and I and all that lot. You know, we worked and raised the money. Such this, a celebrity, I, Steve. This, this idea. And uh, I, put, I put this idea to a GMTV and they went for it. And Oasis, you know, Oasis, we ran all the phones. Yeah. yeah. They always used to show on television a, a picture of the um, BT, the BT Tower. Tower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can cut to these pictures, which were actually in Oasis offices because they was not in the... They, 
and GMTV couldn't afford the BT Tower, <laughs> so we set out loads of phones in our offices and it was our staff. Remember, they used remember to come in like dead early team, every morning team. and man the phones. Yeah. Anyway, we raised enough money to build a hospital. So Tony Blair, knowing knowing that we ran schools yeah. and he asked me about schools, then he asked me about the NHS and healthcare. So I went in and wrote a paper and it was a, a, about a little bit about what we've been talking about and he said it like this, which I've never forgotten and which I wrote into the book, you know, yeah. and he still endorsed it. <laughs> I wrote it. He said, the problem is, Steve, that you, he meant the voluntary sector, yeah. little charities, you were holding the whole baby and trying to look after the baby by yourself and you you couldn't do it. It was patchy, you know, you, mm. you get dropping the baby. Then we decided that we could do a better job and we snatched the baby from you and we took over. But we can't do it yeah. on our own because... And it's only when we get back to two parents that yeah. we're really going to get anywhere. Yeah, and and... And right in the heart of all of that is a, is something about us realising we're community, isn't yes. it? And being fully human with one another. And, and, and you've talked a lot about that before, but I know that that comes out through yeah, the book yeah. as well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, one of the things I say, because I see it so often, you know, you cannot go into some local council's office without, if you're wandering about for many meetings, you see... You're bound to see this poster on the wall, one way or the other. It takes a village to raise a child. <laughs> and and actually, every local council almost is the antithesis of that. Yeah. I'm not picking on local councils. We actually believe it takes a professional to raise a child and the village are a bit of a pain in the yeah, neck. they're annoying. You know, they're annoying. They're very hard to... They, they don't think in straight lines. They don't fill in the forms. They, they you know, they're just, they're just difficult to work with. So we'd rather work without them. And, of course, it's... it's it's not local councils. It, it's all professionals find all those volunteers. Oh, they're so difficult, you know. Whereas communities find professionals difficult, yeah. but communities know the communities. They are the community. They are the elderly. They are the poor. They are the people who lack facilities. Yeah. They are the people who find the park dangerous. They are the people who haven't got healthcare near them. They know. Whereas. The further away you are from an issue in a community, the more remote your decision-making is and the more irrelevant it is. So what do we... What's the solution? Like, what is the solution to all of that? The solution has to be a new form of partnership. So what Beveridge... This really interesting bit, actually. Beveridge says this in 1946. You've got to do this. Nothing's done about it. Fast wind to 2010, a man called Sir Michael Marmot was asked to write what became the Marmot Report. Anybody involved in community work or social work of any sort, everyone heard of the Marmot Report. Giant report, which again was asked to do by government to create a fairer society. In fact, the title is something like Created, fairer society, something, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, so Marmot writes this giant report about... The, the growing distance between the rich and the poor in our society and the way in which poor communities have fallen into to holes and et cetera, et cetera. And he points out in 2010 that the life, the very life expectancy between the richest in our society and the poorest in our society is seven years, mm. a gap of seven years in any community between the richest so and the poorest. So this was in 2010? This is in 2010. It was early 2010. And he said... The only way around this 
is to engage communities, work with communities, empower communities. The only way of doing it. Now, that was early 2010. Later on in 2010, David Cameron became the Prime Minister, coalition government, mm. Nick Clegg and all the rest of it. And guess what they launch? A report. The Big Society. Hey. And they say, the Big Society, we're going to empower people. It was a response yeah. to Marmot, really. They, 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 everybody had listened to Marmot and the Big Society was going to empower local communities, do the whole thing, et cetera, et cetera, give power back to the people. Within four years, the Big Society charity they'd set up, the Charity Commission has shut, shut it down because it wasn't working. And the chief executive, he was called Paul Twivy. There you are, piece of random information. He was invited onto the Today programme and he was interviewed and they said, why didn't the big society work? And he said, because we got the most centralised government of any Western European uh, developed country, we will not give away power to people. We will not enfranchise them. We talk about it, but we don't do it. We do things to people and they're normally things they don't want and shun instead of working with them and listening to them. So a phrase, a phrase I heard you use, and I'm really interested in the connection of all of this in a minute about mm. spirituality, but a phrase I heard you use uh, when you were talking about this quite recently was uh, we've set up traps, not trampolines. Yes. When you were talking about this. Yeah, because that's what you do when you don't involve people. You do things to people. It squashes them. It dehumanises them. It puts them down. But when you engage people, they get excited. You turn the trap into a trampoline. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very... Uh, as a very, very, very senior job in one of our big cities. And we were talking about this some time ago before I wrote the book. And he just said, do you know, Steve, when I think about it, I can't think of a time when we've actually lifted a mm. family out of intergenerational poverty. We just nurse them in it. We provide for them, you know, we resource them. But, yeah, we trap them in it. It's not a trampoline. That's our task. And the charitable sector especially small community charities, which I hope Oasis actually is. You know, it's a big charity working in lots local. of communities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, we empower yeah. people in communities to get on and do it. Centralisation is a curse everywhere. You need good central principles, but you should always make every decision as close, close to, to the, the ground, ground as you possibly yeah. can and in the community where you can because if you don't make it there, the distance between you and the community normally means, very often means, that although it sounds wise at the centre, it feels stupid, stupid. In, the, in, in, the, in the place. I now, could give so many examples yeah, right now. Well, exactly. Now, Marmot, here's the incredible thing back in, you know, almost up to into the pandemic. Marmot was asked by government to write a 10-year follow-up on his report. So he did it in 2020. Yeah. He got a bit lost because of the pandemic. And he said... Nothing's happened except that stuff has gone worse, got wow. worse. Everyone's disempowered. The gap had become, become wider. Then Boris Johnson, when he was the Prime Minister, he, because remember we asked people to volunteer for the NHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and they all volunteered and then there was nothing for them, them to, to do. do. <laughs> so we asked Danny Kruger, who's a, a sitting Conservative MP, to do a report. The Kruger report. Brilliant. And Danny Kruger said it's because we make decisions at the centre and we don't listen yeah. to the communities. And he said, 
We've got to listen to communities and involve communities. So from beverage to Kruger and everything in between tells us the same thing. But we trap people. We don't create trampolines. So to finish off, Steve, Mm. what on earth has all of this got to do with us as we're spiritual, right? Yes. We're spiritual and physical and emotional. We're all of the things. But Mm. spirituality is actually core to this whole conversation. Yeah, it is. So the bit I've just been talking about, I think most of it's in the introduction to my book, the beverage bit is. And then there are 10 principles that I think I've learned through the painful and exciting journey of, of developing Oasis so, since 1985. Uh, so 10 principles. And if what I've been just talking about is taken from the introduction and principle one, then what you're talking about is in principle 10. It's the last principle in the book. Because what I say is what I've learned over the years is that, yes, people need great housing and they need good schools and they need good services and they've got to be involved in creating them. But as you get involved in creating them, what very often happens is you're changed. It's not just that everything else changes around you. It's that you're changed. And I, I I talk about Maslow, Abraham Maslow, you know, the great American psychologist, and Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the big triangle. And, which everyone always goes on which about. Which everyone talks about. I mean, yeah. incessantly yeah. talks about Maslow, who was a great man. Here's the problem, though. As I say in my book, we don't talk about what Maslow really thought because in the latter years of his life, he said that his triangle, his, his, his hierarchy, hierarchy yeah. was inaccurate didn't work because the so hang on he said he wrote about it he didn't just say it so he said what i've written about it's not it doesn't work doesn't work it doesn't work and what he said was you know the pinnacle of the hierarchy you know start with your basic needs and you build up and you build up to this place of self-actualization which he said was the pinnacle of being human. But as he got older, of course, he realised that he knew a load of self-actualised people who were just a pain in the neck. You know, yeah. some of the most painful people are people who are very enfranchised, yeah. you know. They know their rights and everything. They are, they, you know, yeah. they're self-actualised and they make life very difficult for every everyone else. Some very famous people, mm. you know, celebrity, etc. cetera. Uh, some not. So self-actualised organization said said Maslow, isn't it? I was wrong. He said, actually, the top of the pyramid, the hierarchy, should be what he called self-transcendence, or he sometimes called it ego transcendence. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Ego transcendence, self-transcendence. When you get caught up in something that's bigger than you are and you lose your littleness because you're there to give yourself to others, there is some bigger calling, some bigger mission, some purpose beyond your own little self. But a person that's wrapped up in themselves makes a very small parcel, basically. That's what he was saying. So he said this self-transcendence, this ego transcendence, sentence which he described as a spiritual experience um that's that's the key to all this and again maslow is echoed by endless other people you know stephen covey and the 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 seven habits of highly effective people yeah Yeah. well what in his last years (laughs) covey wrote and it's called the eighth habit (laughs) it's called the eighth habit a new book and he said the eighth habit is spirituality 
It's spiritual. And you could go, I could quote endless people who who went on that journey. The thing is, Maslow died a couple of years after talking about self-transcendence, and he never did integrate self-transcendence into his hierarchy. And here's my question. If I could interview, you know, Abraham right now, I'd say, Abe, you know, I've got this question. (laughs) Yeah, I've got this question for you. Is it that you ran out of time or is it that you realised you couldn't? Because the thing about the hierarchy is you have to get past the basic things to reach the higher. You know, you can do self-transcendence when everything else is taken care of, all the basic things, food and water and, you know, mm. uh, you know warmth and comfort, and then beyond this self-actualization. But when you think about it, some of the people who live for a bigger purpose and mission, they get to this place without going through all the stages. Nelson Mandela. 16 years on Robin Island and then in other jails, mm. locked up, mm. has nothing, forced to work in a quarry every day. Mother Teresa, Emmeline Pankhurst. You can go on and on and on, mm. can't you, with people who somehow get to a place of self-transcendence and service but not because they became billionaires or millionaires and fame and wealth and, you know, had everything they wanted. And, and had said, a crisis. There's, yeah. yeah. But because they didn't do that bit. And so I'm not sure that self-transcendence sits at the top. It just is the meaning of life. Yeah. It's about awakening. It's about a moment of epiphany and normally lots of moments of epiphany when you suddenly wake up that there's something more. And I think that's what spirituality is. I, um, as you know, Jill, I worked in my spare time whilst I was working for Oasis. Um, I was asked to be the United Nations Special Mm. Advisor on Human Trafficking, well, actually Community Action on Human Trafficking. And um, I did that for about eight years. So I went, you know, in and out of New York, Manhattan, you know, where they would got their bases in Geneva and, you know, all the rest of it, and working with lots of the UN agencies, UNICEF, etc., UNODC, um, six of them I used to work with. And um, so I got to know a lot about the UN. <laughs> and But one of the extraordinary things about the UN is they're fighting for the rights of the child, UNICEF, yeah. all the rest of them, yeah. fighting for the rights of the child. And um, there's a convention, the the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which I think was formed in the early 80s. And it says that every child in the world, on the planet, has a right to physical health, mental health, social health and spiritual health. Absolutely. And there's the thing. All the nations of the world, well, not all of them, but most of them, 190-something at that point, were in the UN, and they agree that every child deserves spiritual health. Mm. In other words, the ability to see their story in a bigger story, a a bigger story beyond themselves. But here's the thing. We all say it's a right, but then we don't know what spirituality is and we don't know how it works and how it fits in and, and people argue about spirituality and then they get it muddled up with religion and institutions and, you know, all sorts of things. But it's about that journey. And sometimes, in my view, formal religion plays a really important part in that, like it has done in my life, in your life too. I became a Christian and it lifted me out of my poverty Mm. of every sort, you know, really did. Same for for you. But 
I recognise, we know that for other people it's a different religion, formal religion. But I understand you know, people are down on formal religion, but sometimes this spirituality has nothing to do with a formal religion, but it's still a crisis moment somehow when you wake up yeah. to stuff well, beyond you. Steve, thank you. Just that thing you said there, just like an invitation to, to wake up. And what a joy, like in, in Oasis... Mm to be able to play our part in that for others. Thank mm. you for writing the book <laughs> and for being the founder. <laughs> we appreciate you. So thanks, Steve.